Thank you, Elena. Well, grab your Bible or Bible app and head to Nehemiah chapter 8. This past week, uh, Dr. Maddox took us to the book of Isaiah and really shared with us how they would be waiting. The Israelites and those in Judah as well, both north and southern kingdoms, would be waiting for someone to come, waiting for a son to be born whose uh, the government would rest on his shoulders, waiting for the oppressors that they had to see the justice that was perhaps coming to them. And since that time, since Isaiah prophesied, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah would be conquered, and the people would be waiting for that justice to take place. They would be waiting, too, because the temple, the place that they had worshipped, the really, the, the place that their worship was centered around was destroyed. They were waiting to restore proper and right worship to the Lord, just waiting. But it really wasn't empty waiting. You know, it's not like they were sitting around and, and twiddling their, their thumbs. But it was an active waiting. The prophet Jeremiah told the people when they were going to be going into exile, when they were going to be taken from their land to other lands, that, that they should really invest in the place that they're at, build homes have children, get married, seek the welfare of the city in which you're living in. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It wasn't an empty waiting, but it was a purposeful waiting, an active waiting. So as the exile happened, oftentimes it's the skilled people that were taken out of the cities, taken back to these other kingdoms to use their, their gifts and their skills for the benefit of that kingdom, but other people were left behind. Left behind, and they too would be waiting, waiting for the resources and waiting for people with the skills to help rebuild their destroyed city. People in Jerusalem waiting for the rebuilding of their own homes in reality, rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple. They just didn't seem to have the skills to do it on their own. And in reality, that is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah record. After the exile is over, and people begin returning, skilled people, they begin to rebuild the city, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding their worship. And they waited. They waited for the walls to get done. They waited to rebuild the temple and restore their worship. So let's read from Nehemiah 8. This is after they finished all of the rebuilding of the walls, and, and Ezra calls all the people together. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, now we get to verse 1, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate 
They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malachijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Hashbadanah, yeah, Zechariah. I practiced it and I still got it wrong. Just, you know, that's okay. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jehozabad, Hanan, and Peliah were instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. So what we see is he, uh, Ezra read the law, and the Levites are now instructing the people. So there's a, um, several of them that are helping to teach. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This is a holy, a day holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the walls are all built, and, and really what happens is the people of Israel, the people living in Jerusalem, are now switching their focus from the building of those things, the physical structures, to perhaps rebuilding their worship, the community of believers gathering. And this is right around the time of the, the Feast of Booths, a booth or like uh, a tent, you could almost say. It was there to, to remind the people. It was a joyous time, a time of, of joy and celebration because they were reminded of when God had brought them out of Egypt and they stayed in tents, but they were no longer 
slaves to the Egyptians. A joyous time. I wonder if it had a certain contemporary significance for them at this point in time too. For so long they had been in exile in other lands, working in other lands, but now they were brought home, so to speak, remembering God's goodness not only for their forefathers many, many generations earlier who came out of Egypt, but also now for them, for themselves, rejoicing perhaps that they too now have left exile and have been brought home, so to speak. So Ezra begins his sermon reading from the word of God for about half a day. From early morning until midday, I jokingly said to someone here in this room, I won't say who, I plan on preaching all morning. And the response was, well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. I I wonder what happens, though. He read it aloud, it says, from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate. People gathering in one area. It's interesting that this isn't the temple, but it hasn't been reconstructed yet. It's interesting, too, that they didn't gather in, like, the temple courtyard. You would think they would read it in that area. But the beautiful thing that happens with Ezra not choosing the temple or the temple courtyard is that more than just men can be there. Because they're gathering in this open space this courtyard-type area, we see that there's more than just They're gathered with men and women and likely children who have reached an age of understanding. It's kind of the same picture that we do here at Princeton. We have kids, we think about third grade level. Well, now it's everybody because of COVID, but uh, third grade level, an age of understanding that they begin joining us in worship together, hearing uh, the word of God. Uh, hearing it together, singing together, instead of being in in a classroom where they hear it at their uh, age and appropriate level. So all these people are gathered together to hear the word of the Lord at the water gate outside of the temple, a plaza, likely actually on the east side of the city. And so as the people are gathering and hearing this word, It's interesting, their reaction. They're eager to hear this day-long sermon, we could say. The reading of the word, and as the Levites instructed them, they're eager to hear it. There's not a, a slouching in the couch. There's not a, you know, checking of the watch. Didn't happen. There's not a nervous playing on their phones, pretending they're actually looking at Scripture, but actually playing a game or something. There's none of that taking place. In reality, the people are standing the entire time. They, they hear the word of the Lord, and even though they can, they can see Ezra standing on this platform, they themselves, in reverence for God's word, stand standing almost at attention with how important it was, how important it was to their life. 
But they did other things as well as they heard the word. They raised their hands and agreed with the word by saying, Amen, Amen. I agree with what this word has to say. I agree with it. I think we can take that as an invitation in our own worship too, to raise our hands as we sing perhaps, or to say amen in agreement. But they do something else. They bow. They bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Yes, they emphatically said amen and they praised the Lord with their hands up, but they also too took on another posture where they they bowed down, likely down on their knees, faces down to the ground. Though they were gathering for this joyous seven-day feast and they would hear God's word seven days in a row, not only did they come the first day for a day-long reading, but they'd come back over and over to hear the word that was spoken to them from the book of the law. And as they did, they realized that they hadn't been following God. They hadn't been following God the way that perhaps they had hoped to or the way that they should have or the way that the law prescribes. Later on, I think it's in later in chapter 8 or 9, the people actually are weeping. They are weeping because of what they have learned and how different it is from what they are actually living. And I think we can see perhaps or or we can say that there's three functions, we call it, of the Old Testament. Three functions of, functions of the Old Testament. The law can reveal what is pleasing to God. It shows us what God uh, appreciates. Uh, it shows us who we serve and what he is like. It's, it's an instrument for the people to give praise and honor and glory to God. It's, it's those things that we want to raise our hands for and say amen and amen. That's one of the things. The other is the law can, we say, restrain evil. Though I guess law in and of itself cannot change the hearts of people. The law perhaps can, through a limited measure, provide justice until the fullness of justice is seen later on as, as Jesus come back, comes back and is returns to this world. But then there's this third reason, which the Jesus Storybook Bible mentions. The law in the Old Testament can function like a mirror into our life. The law of God mirrors the perfect righteousness of God and who he is to us, but it also, on the contrary, illuminates and mirrors back our selfishness and our sinfulness of our life, showing us perhaps how far we are from God, how far we are from living a perfect and holy life as he is a perfect and holy God. And the people, they bow down 
and worship. These words, bowing down and and worshiping the Lord, is something that sometimes they appear together. When when Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, he, he bowed down and worshiped God, seeing God's immense glory. In Numbers chapter 22, which we were in about eight months ago, uh, early on in, in the COVID time, we talked about this, this guy named Balaam who had a, uh, a donkey that he was leading, but the donkey would not follow because an angel of the Lord was there. And when Balaam saw the angel of the Lord, he was overwhelmed with the angel's glory, and he bowed down and worshipped. And so here, the people are overwhelmed with God's glory, his majesty, his perfection, that they bow down and worship, that they weep that in later chapters they too can confess not only their sin, but the sin of their forefathers, the sin of, of generations before them. They saw their own failings and they wept because of it. It was the idolatry, perhaps, that caused them to weep. Idolatry that had it happened and perhaps led them into exile where the people would, would worship other gods, where there was other um, worship areas that were not official places of worship that they would go to and bring offerings. They, they confessed the sin of their forefathers, perhaps even thinking about the idolatry that happened at Mount Sinai of the creation of this golden calf to worship The book of Amos gives us an idea of other places in which they too had failings. So perhaps perhaps they confessed that their worship had God, of God had become mechanical and routine. That they had only been going through the motions, had forgotten about the true love and compassion that God had showed them, how God had truly saved them from death. And that lack of compassion and love found its way into the relationships, the interpersonal relationships. Amos talks about how the rich people would take advantage of the poor. They would enrich themselves on the back of those who couldn't afford any other way. People who would sell themselves into slavery, the rich people would take advantage of. Gaining advantage through the powerless. Taking advantage of the needy and the poor instead of helping them. Perhaps when we too look at scripture, it could be something that functions like a mirror for us. Mirroring back God's glory, but also mirroring back our failings. I wonder what we're made aware of when we read God's word, when we hear God's word. 
when we hear of the selflessness of Jesus as he gave up of himself, are we made aware of our selfishness in our care of ourselves? I wonder what we notice. I wonder if we notice our ignoring of other people and their needs. The ignoring of the person on the street corner that we drive by every week. Or maybe, or maybe instead thinking, well, I can help take care of that problem. I'll just give some money rather than give of my time and person and energy. Perhaps ignoring sinful problems that affect our whole world, or at least in the United States. A complete ignoring of human trafficking. An enabling of human trafficking. I wonder, I wonder how we would do that. I was just reading the human sexuality report from our denomination, and one of the areas it talked about is pornography and how prevalent it is even in the Christian community. I wonder how many of those individuals who look at pornography think that this individual who they may be looking at was someone who was trafficked, forced into a profession that they had not intended. Supporting sinfulness Maybe that, though, seems a little too distant to us. Maybe instead, reading Scripture mirrors back to us the anger that's inside our minds that no one else knows about, the thoughts that we have, the frustrations, and how we really want to let that person have it, but no one would know because it's just in your own mind. Or maybe... It mirrors back the harsh tone that you somehow take and speak to the people that you love and care about. But no one knows about it because you just seem like the most pleasant and happy person when they see you in public. Maybe we, we wrestle with the socially acceptable desire for a better life and desiring more, the American dream, we call it. Each of us maybe having a better life than our parents did or our kids having a better life than we did. Perhaps it mirrors back the ignoring of our neighbors and the desire that we should have to care for them, but we just drive in our driveway and shut the door, not to be seen until we leave for work tomorrow. But here's the thing. We could spend all day talking about the different ways that we fail, probably. And, and, and we, too, probably like the Israelites here at the water gate, would, would fall down on our knees and we would weep over the, fail, uh, the things that we wish we would have done better. But that's not where Ezra leaves the people. 
even though the people recognized the gravity of their sin and the failing, they acknowledged God's faithfulness, his mercy, and his strength. says this, trying to find verse 10. Go and eat choice foods and sweet drinks. Give to those who have nothing prepared. This is a day holy to the Lord. Do not grieve. Even though they might be on their knees and weeping over sinfulness, he says, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. People will go on to realize that even though through the failings of Israel in the past, their forefathers, and through the failings of of their own lives, God has been involved and active and compassionate even among them. Taking them from exile and bringing them back to Jerusalem taking them from exile and re, uh, stating promises that he has for his people, promises of a son who would come and one day the government would rest on his shoulders. They're not left to wallow in their misery. Instead, they're left to rejoice in the Lord as a saving and resurrecting God. And we too are led to rejoice. Rejoice in knowing that the word of the Lord would come, that Jesus Christ himself would come in the form of a person, God and man together, the fullness of God, the fullness of man, born as a baby, born to set his people free. It's a story where where weeping is replaced by the clinking of glasses, by celebration. It's the story where, where recognition of sin is replaced with a feast that lasts for days. Eating food, jovial laughing, sharing of stories, recognition of grace. I think that's what we do as well. Instead of wallowing in sin, what the Holy Spirit does when he shows us our sin is is to show us something else. He drives us to look at the cross. The Spirit shows us our sin, but then drives us to look at the cross because it's at the cross that that sin is forgiven. He causes us to remember and believe something that happened in the past and that something that happens each and every day as we approach the Lord, that he gives us his grace, that he gives us his mercy, that he gives us his peace. It's the forgiveness of the gospel on display each and every day of our life. And it's something that we get to do today, too. 
just like the Israelites who had gathered in Jerusalem, we too will gather together for a feast. Might not seem like much. Just a little wafer and a little cup of juice. It's not the feast that perhaps we hear about in Scripture. But it's a feast that declares pardon. You know, much is made of the pardons that are made at the end of a president's term. But I think we can make even more about the pardon of Christ in our life. How God pardons us because of what Christ has done. Instead of looking at the sin in our life, instead, he looks at Jesus himself and says, Come to me, child. Come to me, for I love you and care for you. What a joyous occasion. And it's an occasion that we celebrate because just before Jesus went to the cross, he gave us this sign, this sign of his love, this sign that would would show us how we are to remember time after time what he has done for us taking to this joyous occasion, perhaps, that was the Passover, a time of remembering God's faithfulness and and transporting it into a way in which we eat and drink, remember and believe what Christ has done for us. I invite Shelley, if anyone does not have one of these wonderful little communion packs, Raise your hand that Shelly, can, can you give you one here? If you're at home, um, I forgot to announce it, but um, feel free. Grab, you know, graham cracker, Ritz cracker, saltine, whatever you have, bread, uh, and some juice, um, and, and, uh, and prepare that for yourself. It's, it's through this sacrament that Jesus invites us. He invites all of those who are are baptized and believe in him as their Lord and Savior. All of those who have have seen the gravity of their sin, but also have seen the glory of God and the forgiveness that is offered, the joy. He invites all of us into this feast. Just like the Passover, we too invite children to this feast. To participate because we believe that through baptism, children are incorporated in part uh, to God's family. That they too, even at the youngest of ages, can begin to understand and believe what God has done for them. At his last supper, Jesus, he took the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the same time, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Each time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And every time that we gather and and we take part in this sacrament, every first Sunday of the month, what we do is we proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes again. We proclaim the Lord's resurrection until he comes again. Let us pray together as we enter this time of communion. Lord, we are so thankful for your word, that your word shows us how to live, how you would like us to live, but more so that your word shows us how Christ lived for us. We pray that you would send your spirit into this place, that this bread and this cup may be for us the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. We pray, too, that your Holy Spirit would cause all of us, all of the the saints that have gone before us, all those who will come after and those who are alive right now, be united together with Christ. We pray that you would cause us today to remain hopeful and faithful in remembering his love and his grace to us. Gather your whole church, Lord, together into the glory of your kingdom, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Though we eat communion at different locations, scattered throughout this building, perhaps, scattered across the city, we could say, scattered even sometimes across states, We are united together as one body through that Spirit. Through the Spirit who unites us with Christ and one another. And so, let us take the bread this morning. As we are united together, we know that this bread that we eat is a sharing, our sharing, in the body of Jesus Christ. Take, eat, remember and believe that the body of Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all of our sin. In this this cup that's so difficult to open, you hear the crinkling, that's okay, right? Um, this cup for which we give thanks for is our sharing in the blood of Christ. Take, drink. Remember and believe that the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of our sin. Let us join our hearts in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this nourishment. Though it might not seem like much from a nutritional standpoint, it means much for our spiritual health, our spiritual unity, our spiritual endurance as we Run this race which you've set before us. We pray that by your spirit, 
you have strengthened us for this journey. That we, along with all of the other believers, may be kept faithful. That we and all the other believers may remember the joy of Christ. The joy in his life that it was to give of himself that others may have life to the full in everlasting life. Help us to remember that joy and that love. Help us to express that back to you in worship in acknowledgement of our own sin too. Continually drive us to your cross, the source of our grace and the source of our life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This time I invite the worship team forward.